If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. As I'm sure you already know, this podcast is produced by the team behind BBC History magazine. And we're pleased to bring you a very special offer. Subscribe to BBC History magazine today and you can choose a book worth up to £30. Choose from either Queens of the Crusades by Alison Weir, The Children of Ashen Elm by Neil Price, Agent Sonia by Ben McIntyre or The Story of China by Michael Wood. Not only that, you'll also get every issue of BBC History magazine delivered direct to your door, all from just £22.45. To take advantage of this fantastic offer, visit our official online store at buysubscriptions.com forward slash history book. This promotion is only available for UK residents and while stocks last. You'll receive your book within 28 days of ordering. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. This episode is the latest in our Everything You Wanted to Know series, in which we explore a subject through questions that you've sent in on social media and popular internet search queries. Today's topic is the ancient city of Babylon. And our expert is Professor Zainab Barani of Columbia University in New York. Putting the questions to her was BBC History Magazine's editor, Rob Attar. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Zainab Bahrani. Zainab is Edith Parada Professor of Ancient Near Eastern Art and Archaeology at Columbia University in New York, and an expert, obviously, in the ancient Near East. She's written numerous books and articles, uh, most recently Mesopotamia, Art and Architecture, which was published a couple of years ago by Thames and Hudson. As always with these podcasts, the questions we're going to ask are a combination of some that our listeners have sent in via social media, as well as some popular internet search queries. So to begin with a fairly simple but important question, where exactly was the city of Babylon located? The city of Babylon was and is still located in in the south of modern-day Iraq. It's about 90 kilometers south of the current capital city of Baghdad in Iraq. So it's in the south of Iraq. 
And that's where it was in antiquity also, on the Euphrates River. And we had a couple of questions sent in exploring the origins of the city. So James Dallin on Instagram wanted to know who were the people who established the city. And Raphael Zaidi on Facebook asked, what geographical, climatic and other factors led to the creation of the earliest societies developing in Mesopotamia? So I wonder if we could maybe sort of tackle those together. Um, well, that's really a very large question because, of course, uh, the city of Babylon um, emerged uh, over a period of time. The earliest records that we have of it in written texts are from about 2300 BC, from the Akkadian period. And then that's when it's actually named as the city of Babylon. Um, so in terms of the earliest written accounts, that's what we have of it. Those accounts were written in the Akkadian language in cuneiform script. That's the wedge-shaped script that they used in antiquity. The other question regarding the rise of the first cities takes us back a lot farther in time, not to 2300 BC, but much farther back in time um, when the first cities began to be created uh, especially in the fourth millennium BC, when the first complex societies arose in the south of Mesopotamia. And at that time, uh, people who were living in the south of Mesopotamia, again, we're speaking about the area that is now under the, the state of Iraq, uh, a number of cities arose. Most important of them was the city of Uruk, um, and we still think of that as the first city. And their complex society arose, um, advanced uh, forms of governance, kingship. Uh, at the same time, we have the invention of writing um, that came about at that time. Um, and so this is a, a time when the first cities arose. And then after that, by about 2300 BC, we know that there was a city of Babylon. So why did, did these advances take place in Mesopotamia? I think we can look at the whole region called the Fertile Crescent. So that would take us up the Tigris, all the way up towards Syria and uh, Turkey and the Levant. And this area that we call the Fertile Crescent is where the place where um, people first stopped being hunter-gatherers and settled into agricultural communities. So the development of agriculture took place here and people began to settle into communities. Um, the climate uh, was a factor, as well as the, the fact that um, the river valleys of the Tigris and the Euphrates were an important factor in this um, location. And on the subject of um, the kind of advanced nature of the, the civilizations in this era, we had a question from Nicholas Serges on Twitter who said, in games like the Civilization series, Babylon is frequently characterized as a technological powerhouse. Is this characterization accurate? And if so, what technologies or knowledge did they possess that set them apart from others at the time? Oh, that's really interesting because I didn't know about these games and um, I'm sure that the, that, the, that the games present Babylon as a powerhouse because it was a an ancient empire at a certain point, at least, um, which was quite powerful. Technologically, 
We can say that in, in those days, they, they had uh, quite some advances. I mean, for example, if we think about the architecture of the city of Babylon itself and how it was remembered um, in later classical texts and in legend, it became a legendary city because of its size, um, the way that it looked. And so uh, this created a memory of Babylon that I think probably even influences these games. In terms of what is the most important technology that came out of this area, um, one might argue that that would be the invention of writing. And that didn't come out of the city of Babylon itself, but it did come out of Babylonia in, in this southern region of Mesopotamia. So um, I think I think that... Uh, in that sense, if we consider how writing changed the world, um, we might uh, think about how technologically that was so impactful in antiquity. And are there aren't any other particular developments of knowledge or um, learning that, that you'd particularly want to highlight for Babylon? Well, I mean, once you have the invention of writing and you have uh, the beginning of writing of all kinds of uh, literary genres, forms of scholarship arose. So, of course, the Babylonians were very advanced in things like mathematics. They were very advanced in um, uh, things like the charting of the stars later on. Um, so, the, sci the, the sciences, what we would call the sciences today, and in literary forms of writing as well, they were quite um, developed. And I realise that Babylon's history covers several millennia. Is there what you'd call a heyday of ancient Babylon? Well, I think when people think of the heyday of Babylon, they think of two particular moments in time that stand out. One would be in the 18th century BC, uh, which is the during the reign of the King Hammurabi. And the King Hammurabi is uh, best known uh, for the, the monument that we call the Law Code of Hammurabi, um, which is from about 1760 BC. And um, many school children learn about that in school as uh, the world's earliest law code. We now know that there were, in fact, even earlier law uh, monuments of law before this and and um, texts that write down laws before this, but somehow this has stayed in people's um, minds as the earliest law code. And uh, he was a very influential and powerful king um, politically as well, but uh, he's mostly associated with this law code. The other period in time is the time of the king Nebuchadnezzar. So uh, we, we're moving much uh, forward in time to a period between 604 and 562 BC, uh, the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, um, which is the time when the city um, underwent a great deal of reconstruction and uh, the building of major monuments, major architectural structures, and we have uh, descriptions, ancient descriptions of what the city looked like at that time. So I would say those are the two periods that are considered uh, Babylon's heyday. And then I suppose that ties into a question we had on Instagram from Infant of Plants, who uh, wanted to know, who were the greatest kings and queens of Babylon? Well, I think that... that 
that's sort of the same question because I would say that the greatest kings would be considered um, Hammurabi and Nebuchadnezzar. I think that uh, that that's the short answer to that question. And um, so Infant Blance was also talking about queens. I don't know whether there were any queens that were actually in power in Babylon, but I mean, in general, what was the role of women like in this ancient... Well, I mean, it's the role of women was very interesting because on the one hand, this was an ancient patriarchal society, of course, in which uh, kingship and rule and governance was uh, in the hands of men. However, we do know some things about women, about queens who were consorts and um, spouses of the kings. We, we have some information about them. And we have a, a great deal of information about women going back to the third millennium BC. And especially in those days, it seems that uh, women in southern Mesopotamia had um, qu- quite a bit of uh, authority and independence. For example, they ran businesses um, they owned their own households and businesses. They could make their own uh, votive offerings to temples. Um, so they they were not uh, they they were not completely written out of history. We do know things about them, and and their situation seems to have been better than that of women in some other ancient societies. Although I, I don't want to overly romanticize it and present it as a society in which women had equal rights to men, because as in all ancient societies, that was not the case. Um, certainly um, Babylon, the city and ancient Babylonia were patriarchal societies. And a question that came in on Twitter from JJAM67 was, what was the principal religion in Babylon? The the religion of the Babylonians was a polytheistic religion. They believed in many gods, and the gods were related to, to the cosmos. They were related to, to the planets, um, the pantheon of the gods. They were also related to, to natural phenomena in the landscape, um, in nature. Um, so... Uh, they were not a monotheistic people. They were polytheistic. They they believed in a pantheon of many gods. Now, I suppose one of the things that Babylon is best known for, at least in the popular imagination, is the Hanging Gardens of the city, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And we had uh, Sebastian on Facebook asked a question about that, and he wanted to know what were the Hanging Gardens of Babylon and what evidence is there that they actually existed? It's unfortunately the case that there is no archaeological evidence for the hanging gardens um, of Babylon. We only have textual descriptions, and those are um, quite a bit later. And uh, so we're not actually quite sure where they were. In fact, one scholar um, has argued that they weren't even in Babylon, that they may have been in Nineveh, in what would be now the north of Iraq. Um, so qu- quite a distance away. That's one argument that's been made. Um, however that may be, even if they were in Babylon, we're not quite sure how they functioned. Um, and uh, there's still a great deal of debate about this issue. Were they even really in Babylon? Were they not? What does hanging garden mean? Where would they have been located? Were they terraced, for example, um, on artificial hills? 
Uh, all of these are still open questions because we don't have the archaeological evidence for that. So are we relying purely on literary sources? Yes, at this point we're relying on literary sources. That doesn't rule out the possibility that one of these days archaeological evidence might be found. Because all of these things are works in progress in the end. I mean, we haven't... Um, excavated the entire city of ancient Babylon. I mean, the the city itself uh, was really quite large, um, as we know from the writings of classical authors um, and even from the ancient Babylonian texts. Uh, the city was really um, enormous. And uh, it may have been something like 900 hectares in size. And the, excava the excavated part that was uh, dug up mostly by German archaeologists at the beginning of the 20th century was only a very small part of the inner city. So there's a great deal more um, left to be understood about the ancient city of Babylon. And perhaps the, the other most famous story, if you like, that is associated with Babylon is the legend of the Tower of Babel. Um we had a question from Nixinstera on Instagram, and he wanted, or she wanted to know, how did the myth of the Tower of Babel come about? Well, the, the myth of the tower is, of course, a biblical myth, right? I mean, this is part of uh, biblical history, uh, which develops later. But it seems to me that it's, or it seems to a lot of scholars, not just to me, that it's, uh, in fact, based on the ziggurat, the temple tower, um, that is in the sacred precinct of the supreme god Marduk in Babylon. So there was a, a ziggurat, which is the stepped temple tower uh, located here. And the foundations of that ziggurat still exist today. Um, it was a, a, a very uh, large uh, structure and Herodotus describes it as being eight stories high. Um, but uh, from Babylonian texts, we think it was more like seven stories high with a shrine on top, which was a temple to the god and in which um, there was um, an altar and a dais uh, where the statue of the god might recline. Um, but uh, the fact that there was such a large ziggurat there I think started the story that this was some kind of an act of hubris that the, the, the Babylonians tried to reach the heavens by building um, this ziggurat and that this was an act of hubris and therefore, um, in the, according to the biblical account, God was upset and then um, uh, afflicted the Babylonians with many languages. When I think of that, I think it's rather amusing because uh, what we know about um, Babylon, especially in the Neo-Babylonian period, so at the time of the King Nebuchadnezzar, is that it would have been a multilingual cosmopolitan city. It was, it was the big city of antiquity. It was the biggest city in antiquity before the building of uh, imperial Rome. Um, so you have to imagine it as a cosmopolitan center. And there were people there speaking many languages, including um, even languages such as Greek. Um, and of course, later on, when it became part of the Hellenistic Empire, uh, Greek was also a language. But I'm speaking at this very moment 
um, when the ziggurat uh, structure was in use, that city would have been a multilingual city. It was not um, a monolithic population at all. Um, so I, I wonder whether that could have influenced the story as well. Uh, but of course, the Temple Tower, the ziggurat of Babylon, was not the only one in Mesopotamia. There were many, many structures of the kind. And then later on, when um, in the 18th and 17th century uh, AD in our own era, when travelers from Europe came to this region, they were always looking for the Temple Tower, uh, the, the ziggurat, the, the, the Tower of Babel, as they called it. But they often mistook this um, spiral minaret from a mosque in Samarra, um, which is an Islamic mosque. They often mistook that structure for the Tower of Babel um, as they understood it. So early travelers were constantly on the lookout for it and didn't understand uh, that this was its location. But we do still have the foundations of that structure, of that tower. Okay, and in the last answer, you talked about some of the different groups that were within Babylon. And we had a couple of questions, actually, about the city's relationship to other societies. So uh, Dealgaboy on Instagram wanted to know, what was the relationship between the Assyrian and Babylonian culture? Oh, that's a very, a, a very um, kind of uh, intertwined and complex relationship because... Um, uh, they battled each other in some periods. They were allied in some periods. The royal houses intermarried um, on a regular basis. So they were closely linked, um, but at certain periods in history, they became adversaries. Uh, but I would say that they were closely intertwined throughout their uh, long millennia, uh, long history. But definitely the royal houses um, especially in the first millennium, intermarried. And then a popular search query relates to the Babylonian capture of Jerusalem. And I wonder if you could explain what happened there and what the significance of that was. Well, the Babylonian capture of Jerusalem uh, dates to 587 BC. And uh, uh, this was part of a, a larger imperial expansion. The entire region was brought into the hegemony of a Babylonian empire. Um, so uh, Jerusalem was was part and parcel of this of this large expanse of the entire region that came under the hegemony of the Babylonians. So at at first um, the 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 city was sacked and a, a puppet king was put into place, but then there was a rebellion um, and the rebellion was uh, put down and uh, people were taken into exile um, it, to uh, Babylon itself. So that episode of history is known, of course, from the biblical account of it. And it's uh, remembered as one of the great tragedies it's interesting that this is a practice that uh, that was common for the Assyrians and Babylonians uh, during the height of empire. What what they often did when they conquered places was that they relocated populations. So uh, this was not a unique um, event at all. This was this was a practice of of warfare and uh, 
expansion and occupation that both the Assyrians and the Babylonians um, had at that time. Um, so we know that the um, the Judean king and his family and his entourage were brought to Babylon. And there are even records, uh, Babylonian records. So, I mean, now I'm moving away from the, the biblical ones because I, I do like to keep the two separate because as sources of history, um, they're not necessarily of the same reliability. But from the ancient Babylonian documents themselves, we know that the Judean king and his uh family and entourage are recorded as living in one of the palaces in Babylon, in a palace um, known as the Northern Palace in Babylon. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. It, it was stunning and magnificent and, and really unexpected, even though they had read the biblical and the classical accounts. I think uh, they were still rather astounded by what they had found. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And one popular search question that seems to come up with, with virtually every topic we look at is uh, what did the Babylonians eat? <laughs> That's a great question, and I've often thought about that. So I think they ate a lot of bread, a lot of dates, um, things like um, uh, fresh green onions, um, you know, what we would call, I don't know what you call them in England, scallions, um, green onions, spring onions. Yes, I think they would have eaten a lot of things like green onions, spring onions. Um, they were not vegetarians. They obviously also ate uh, hunted animals or um, that kind of thing. But I, I would imagine that the diet consisted of a great deal of dates, a great deal of bread. They, they drank beer. Um, we know about this. Um, it, it's some of the accounts. There are, there are actually um, recipes that survive uh, from antiquity, from Mesopotamia, that are rather interesting. And of course, uh, the later you go historically and the more um, powerful and more wealthy these empires become, the more elaborate uh, the feasts seem to have been with, you know, birds stuffed into other birds, uh, presented at banquets with... Uh, all kinds of sauces made out of uh, fruits um, um, associated with them. So it would have been quite a rich diet when, when one looked at the royal palaces, for example. But normal people, I'm sure, had a lot of beer, a lot of bread, a lot of dates, that kind of thing. Now, I, I know, um, as I said before, Babylon stretched over several millennia, but is there a point where this story comes to an end? Is there sort of cut-off point for ancient Babylon? Well, I actually think that's a terrific question because 
depending on who you ask, they'll give you a different answer. Um, I'll, I'll give you my own answer. I mean, there are people who write books about Babylon and um, they stop the story at 539 BC, um, which is a date that's associated with um, the takeover of uh, Babylon by uh, the Persian Cyrus. I don't see that this is an end date because with the Achaemenian Persian dynasty that takes over many of the um, ways of life continue, the religious festivals continue, um, the, the city is used as a royal center by the Persian king. So the, I see a great deal of continuity there. I don't see an end. Um, and, uh, of course, they also use the type of script, the cuneiform script the Babylonians used. And uh, we see, for example, that the Persian kings um, left the palaces intact, but also built a new Persian-style palace within the center of the city of Babylon. So uh, there's a great deal of continuity there. So others will tell you, okay, well, you can include the Persians, but then we should say that when Alexander of Macedon and his troops came in, that that would be, um, you know, in the fourth century BC, that that would be the end. Um, but one can make the same argument that the the religious rituals were um, uh, kept up, that uh, there was a great deal of continuity, there was influence on um, the Greek settlers by the local culture, and that Alexander actually wanted to make this into a royal city for himself, and he in fact died there, as, as we um, know. So when does it actually end? I mean, it seems to continue to be used as a site at least until uh, the first century AD. And then it, it's maybe gradually um, abandoned, but the, it's now within the current city of Hella in the south of Iraq. And the name Babylon was never lost. So unlike some other archaeological sites in the region. It was not lost and then rediscovered. The name Babylon was always known and associated with this location, and the location became a series of ruin hills, what they call tell in the Arabic and in the Akkadian languages. Um, so they became heaped hills, but uh, people were aware that this was an ancient site, as one is always aware that Atel is an ancient site, and the name Babylon did not disappear. And how much of the ancient city still survives today? Well, there's quite a bit, because as I said, uh, at the end of the uh, 19th century and all the way until 1914, with the beginning of the First World War, German archaeologists under the leadership of Robert Koldewey um, started to excavate there. And they uncovered a great deal of monumental architecture in Babylon. And uh, 
it it was stunning and magnificent and and really unexpected even though they had read the biblical and the classical accounts i think uh, they were still rather astounded by what they had found so much so that they decided to dismantle the main gate called the ishtar gate they dismantled it um and uh shipped it in in crates of bricks to Berlin, to a newly established uh, museum there, the Pergamon Museum, and reassembled it there within the museum as this magnificent um, uh, work of architecture. Um, So there were uh, long expanses of uh, walls of the processional way, which they also took to Berlin. There was the Ishtar Gate. There were... um, uh, stretches of wall of the outer walls of of some of the temples. There were remains of the Greek uh, theater that was built during the period of Alexander the Great. Um, all of these were uncovered in the early twentieth century. Then, taking the story forward to the present day, how is Babylon viewed by people within Iraq? There's a great deal of uh, national pride in Iraq associated with Babylon. And this has been the case all through the 20th century, I would say. You see you see mm, images of the Lion of Babylon in popular art and in, in um, anything from graffiti to, to logos for all marketing um, to, to the money that was used. Uh, so Babylon has always been considered a kind of a feather in the cap of Iraq. It was a, a place um, of great pride, um, and in uh, some cases, uh, nationalistic pride that was perhaps misguided, but in other cases, also a sort of a local pride uh, for the community uh, that saw it as uh, a part of their heritage. And I think that that cannot be discounted, despite the way that it may have been used in um, in a negative way at particular periods too. And what do you see as Babylon's most important legacies for the modern world? That's a difficult question. What are the most important legacies for the modern world? There are so many. I mean, as as uh, we discussed earlier, uh, the development of the sciences, I would say, is uh, one of the legacies uh, that we have from uh, Babylon, not just for Iraq and Iraqi people, but for all the world. So when we speak about it as, you know, global heritage or world heritage, uh, we're thinking about things like this, not just the the biblical story or the way that the classical historians um, described it. Because, of course, in that sense, the biblical account and the, the account of, the, of Herodotus or other historians was somewhat negative, right? Because they they were describing the land of the enemy. They were describing the land of uh, you know despotic kings and empires and and so on. But the legacy of things like literature and writing and mathematics and the sciences um, that's that's something else. And and uh, all of the world uh, stood to benefit from that. Now, I realise that travel opportunities are quite limited right now, but are there any particular artworks or artefacts that you think people should be looking for online to showcase the brilliance of Babylonian culture? Well, I think if you want to see a lot of Babylonian objects online, you have to go 
to to the website of the Berlin Museum, the Vorder Asiatische Museum, um, the Pergamon Museum, where many of the remains that were uncovered in the early 20th century were taken. Um, in 1926, a lot of this material was packed up and shipped to uh, Berlin. So uh, the most important finds um, are um, actually in, in Berlin at this point, and they have some material on their website, and you can go online and uh, see those things there. And actually, on that note, have there been many calls for restitution of these objects, as we've had in Britain, certainly, with various items from around the world? Well, there's been a great deal of discussion about uh, restitution, um, especially because there's been so much looting um, in in Iraq uh, since 2003. There's been a, a tremendous amount of looting of archaeological sites, and in, including objects from Babylon itself that have appeared on the market and um, have been sold to private collectors and even to institutions. Um, so uh, there have been calls for restitution and repatriation, and some things are going back. The most famous example, the mo- recent example, is the example of um, the uh, Bible Museum in um, the United States and, and the, the Hobby Lobby Company um, that own, that uh, started that museum um, that is now returning objects um, that were acquired in in a um, illicit way to Iraq. They're being um, returned to Iraq now. But uh, this is this is a a major issue with um, materials from this part of the world, certainly. Um, okay, Zainab. I think I've asked all pretty much all the questions that have come in. Are there any subjects that I really should have asked you about that I didn't have on my list? Well, I think one one thing that we could discuss, and I don't know if you can fit this in somehow, is um, what is the meaning of of Babylon? What is the meaning of the of the name Babylon, for example, and and what was the significance? of Babylon beyond its being a political center. So the name Babylon, Babel in their own language, uh, means the gate of the gods. And this was a, a walled, a magnificent and vast walled city. As I said, it was the largest city in antiquity before Imperial Rome. It was uh, a walled city with many gates. The inner city alone had about eight major gateways and uh, perimeter walls of three layers. Uh, Herodotus describes these walls, um, and in some accounts, uh, in some Greek accounts, uh, the walls of Babylon are counted among the wonders of the ancient world. So the name Babylon means gate of the gods. And in Babylonian religious thought, the act of naming is closely tied to creation. A thing's identity or a, a being's identity is closely tied to a name. So Babylon was the gate of the gods. And every year during the New Year's festival, which is uh, called the Akitu festival in Babylonian, this took place over a course of 12 days in the springtime around uh, the spring equinox. And uh, 
what happened during this event was that the major gods of the city had to go and spend the night in the Akitu house, in the New Year's house, for about three days. And after those three days, they re-entered the city with a great deal of pomp and ceremony. The king and the royal court accompanied them. There was a great procession of the gods entering the city through the Ishtar Gate. And the Ishtar Gate is this magnificent uh, gate, beautifully decorated. Um, if you go and, and look at uh, the part of it that's now in Berlin, you will see that it was uh, beautifully constructed out of uh, blue glazed bricks and decorated uh, with bulls and dragons that protected it. And it was meant to protect the entranceway into the city. So you have to imagine a procession of gods and royalty and um, chariots bearing all kinds of uh, uh, foodstuffs and precious materials entering the city and a procession um, going through this vast processional way past the temples, past the place where people lived and had their marketplaces, going all the way down to the area of the temple tower and the temple of the great god Marduk. And there the gods from the other cities also reassembled in a place where there was a dais of destinies and where the Babylonians believed there was a, 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 a kind of a, a primordial hill that had emerged out of um, the sacred waters of the of the underground, the Apsu waters, where the world first came into existence. And there they would recite the creation epic. They would recite the creation epic, people would hear it, and you have to imagine that this was the one time in the year when where normal people would be able to see the gods who entered the city in their statues, and that this was a magnificent theatrical parade with all kinds of music and scent and um, flowers and ceremony that must have really uh, had a remarkable um, impact on the people of the city. Uh, so, so it was a powerful imperial city. It was a, a political seat of power, but it was also a very important religious center that the ancients believed was uh, the place um, of the bond, what they call the bond between heaven and earth. Obviously, Iraq has gone through a very turbulent last couple of decades. Um, what, what's happened to the city itself in, in the 21st century? In the 21st century, the, the, the most tragic thing that happened to Babylon is that this wonderful site, this amazing city, this uh, now it's counted as a World Heritage Site, that it was turned into a US and coalition military base in 2003. And it was used uh, as a military base all the way until December 22nd, 2004. So from uh, this, the spring of 2003 until the end of December 2004, it housed uh, thousands of troops on this heritage site. Uh, what this meant uh, is that they took the heart of the city, the inner city of Babylon, uh, for um, 
barracks. Uh, they needed to have uh, places for the troops to live. So that meant piping and water. That meant uh, digging into the archaeological layers, uh, digging berms and trenches, uh, bringing in pipes, bringing in uh, earth from other sites and contaminating the archaeological site, bulldozing the center of it between the palace of Nebuchadnezzar and the Greek theater of Alexander. They bulldozed and leveled an area and paved it and used it as um, a helicopter landing zone. And uh, that was very damaging to the site. Um, so fortunately, by the end of uh, 2004, um, the archaeologists who work on the site of Babylon, the director of the site, Maryam Amran uh, Musa, um, primarily responsible uh, for negotiating with them and finally convincing them to remove the troops and, and to close the site. But that was quite a tragedy um, that the United States and the coalition forces, which would include Great Britain, are responsible for. Um, and I think that they really do owe us an apology for that. How has it fared since then? There have been... Um, uh, works towards uh, restoring and uh, preserving some of the um, monuments since then, but it's slow going work because so much was damaged and uh, there's a, a great deal of work still to do. Of course, uh, Iraq is still very much a conflict zone and um, not, not an easy place to work, but eventually we hope that it will be restored um, to, to a place that can be visited by people. That was Zainab Barani. As Rob mentioned, her book, Mesopotamia, Ancient Art in Architecture, is out now, published by Thames and Hudson. Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Tune in again tomorrow to hear Edith Hall discussing the lost city of Atlantis. Mm-hmm.